official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, the Slugfest! You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. Oh, the Battlecast! And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Iran! Welcome, everyone, to episode 12 of K1 Battlecast. This week, we present to you Michael's interview with Paul Slawinski, a fighter who accomplished something few can boast of. He went toe-to-toe with one of K1's most feared hitmen, Badr Hari, and walked away to tell the tale. And just briefly at the end of the show, we got a couple of announcements. We hope you stick around. But until then, we hope you enjoy this look into Paul the Sting Slawinski's fighting career. Okay, we go to Adelaide, South Australia, and joined by a K1 legend of the Oceania region and the European region. It's Paul Slowinski. Paul, great to be with you, mate. Hello. How are you guys? Good to speak to you again, Michael. Mate, it's great to speak with you. We're going to have some memory lane visits in this uh, interview. Let's go back to uh, what was the best year in your K1 career, mate. It was 2007 when you become the K1 European champion. Now, at this time, Paul, you were training with Ernesto Hoost, right, in Amsterdam? Yes, that's right. What led to the move from training in South Australia to venturing all the way to Amsterdam and training with the great Ernesto Hoost? I lived in Thailand for about six years doing my Muay Thai with Stefan Fox and the WMC team. And I was going there from, I went there, I started fighting that 79 kilo. So um, as I was getting older i was getting bigger and heavier and stronger i guess so i, I went all the way up to super heavyweight and um i have won the super heavyweight world title against um jorgen Cruz. and after that i just um had my eyes on k1 and um i had my first entry to k1 oceana in melbourne on Tarek solak's show and um <laughs> that went uh, not so good mitch uh uh, I think it was um, Mad, Mad Mitch Dingo put me away in the first round. And then I um, kind of uh, realized what kind of power those heavyweight guys have in K1. But um, I went back to the gym and kept on training. And then the following year, I re-entered K1 in uh, New Zealand. I fought uh, Jason Sardi, I fought Peter Graham, and I fought Ronnie Sefo. I, um, I won that K1 tournament and um that was my Oceana title and um at that time I think um I, I, I got qualified to fight in Japan against Badahari. That fight you were commentating Michael with Ernesto and um the next uh, the next morning I, I fought Badahari I, I lost some points. The next morning I had um breakfast with you and you were saying oh hey Paul um Ernesto was um, speaking very highly of your of your fight, and um, he also said that he's retiring and um, he's gonna start Team Perfect. And um, I don't know, it was your advice. You said maybe you should go and check it out and see how they go. And um, I was um, yeah, I was pumped to hear that. So um, straight up when I saw Ernesto in the foyer, I just went up to him and I said, "Hey, mom, I heard you spoke nicely of me and." Um, Thank you for the compliments coming from you. It means a lot. And uh, we just started talking and um, Ernesto, yeah, did say, hey, man, I'm retiring. I'm going to start Team Perfect. I'm going to have a few heavyweights. If you want to jump on board, come in. A month later, I was on a plane to Holland. <laughs> and um, I started training with, uh, yeah, with all the boys down there. 
Let, let's so, go. Yeah, you, it, it's an amazing story, and you did touch on the turning point there being the fight against Bada Hari. Now, of course, you went the distance with Bada. You lost by decision, which was rare in those days, Paul, because back then Bada Hari was laying waste to everyone, and you hang, you gave uh, some of your own licks on Bada Hari, and I suppose that's what really impressed Ernesto Ringside, as you said, commentating with me on that night. Tell me about the experience of facing Bada Hari. This was in uh, 2006, and what was he like back then? What did Bada hit you with? What was he really good at? Yeah. With Bada, I, I am um, fight, fighting Muay Thai most of my fights. I kind of uh, learned that um, I can go strike for strike, strike for strike with my opponents, and then I could strike, and then as they come to strike me, I could beat them to a strike, and we call it second phase. I could I could get a lot of those fighters with my second phase. Where, where, where when I was fighting Bada, I just couldn't get that because um. He he knew he was doing a, he was doing a second phase kind of drills with me. So every time I struck him, and I um, was waiting for him to strike me so I can do my second phase counter, he was already onto it, and um, he was just faking faking. I was missing my second phase, and he was just jabbing me and then striking with his kicks. So um, it, it was it was a very frustrating fight for me, and. Um, he basically out, out, outclassed me, and um, that's when I kind of realized, wow, this guy in Holland, they they um they are level level above with the training and the drills and um the second phase, which means the sec the second count of uh, comebacks. Um, yeah, that's where um I kind of realized, like I, you know, he was just a start up a starting fighter, up a coming one, and um. I realized like, wow, these guys, these guys know something more than we do down in Thailand, down in Oceania. So um, I was like, nah, I want to go there. I want to learn those things. I want to, I want to fight like these guys. I remember speaking to Ray Sefo after Ray lost to Bada, and the first thing Ray said to me was, "Brother, I didn't realize how big Bada was." until I stepped in the ring against him. I mean, he stood next to Butter at press conferences. We'd commentated a lot of Butter's fight, but he said he wasn't aware of just how physically imposing and big Butter was until he was toe-to-toe with him in the ring. Even though Butter wasn't at his peak of, you know, being muscular when you fought him in 2006, did you still get the feeling that he was just a, a, a big bloke? I mean, Butter was six foot six. He was very imposing. Yeah. And, and um, yes, his distance, his distance, and his timing, um, it, it's um, it makes him even bigger because he he sits he always sits outside the range of your strikes, but he can strike you back. You know what I mean? Which um, which after after a couple of encounters, you basically missing his missing your shots, but then he's he's getting you with his shots. So when when that happens a few times. You kind of get hesitant to start throwing your hits, to start striking because you know that you missed him by that much, but he got you a couple of good ones. So, um, yeah, he was really, really good at it. Really good at it. So, Paul, you go to Amsterdam. You start training with the great four-time champion, Ernesto Hoost. How does Ernesto change you? You were you're, you're a multiple-time uh, Muay Thai world champion. How does Ernesto's training change you that leads you to becoming a K1 a European champion? Yeah. Oh, basically, we basically that that style of training. It was uh, just sparring and fighting every day, and um, by by 
but doing that, we kind of uh, learn to see the shots coming and then beating the opponent to the punch. So you throw one, 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 two kick combo, and then your opponent's it's your opponent's turn to throw their combo, but then you boom, you catch him before they come back with the counter. You know what I mean? So um, it was yeah, just doing that every day with people like Tyrone Spong, Jerome, Gerald Venetian, Pavel Meyer, Patrick Berry, Anthony Haron. We we just bash each other constantly all day in the gym, and um, it so was. The, 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 the stories we hear about uh, Dutch training is that every training session, when you spar, it's it's hardcore sparring. It's like being in a fight every day. That's true. Then, yes, everybody, every, every session, everybody, somebody gets black eye, blood nose, or gets dropped or knocked out. And um, you basically, after two hours, you get on the bus or get in your car, go home, then you rest. You go afternoon do your strength and conditioning training, and the next day back again, and then. The, the thing over there is like say say for say today I was sparring with Tyrone and, and Tyrone would beat me up and then so so I, I would go home and I just go oh, fuck I gotta get him back tomorrow, you know, because I threw this, he get me with this. I throw this and he got me with this. So you think and you analyze and you analyze and you think. So next day when you go back to session, you get him. And then when you get him, he goes home and he thinks oh, fuck, he got me here, he got me there, so I, I've got to get him tomorrow. You know what I mean? So it's constant, it's constant game, constant. It's it's on, it's on, it's on, it's on. Let's go to the European K1 Grand Prix 2007. This is the night of your life. You've got Ernesto Hust in your corner. You beat Hiromi Amada, Zabit Samadov, and then the tall Bjorn Breji to win the championship. Uh, this must have just been the most spectacular memory for you of all, Paul? Yes, it, it's a highlight of my career. And um, yeah, it um, the, the night itself, fighting those guys, it was, um, it wasn't that hard to be honest. I'm not trying to be arrogant, but um, leading, leading up to the, to the main event, to, to the show night, we were just having wars in the gym every day with you know like i said with all the all the fighters in team perfect we were just having wars every day for a few months and then um surviving those wars and being in those sessions basically i walked into the arena going like i i just felt so strong and so confident then um yeah i was like those guys cannot hurt me i've been every day having a war with Tyron, having a war with Gerald, having a war with Patrick Berry, having a war with all those guys and back and forth and back and forth. It just gives you the feeling of um, being so strong and so confident. Yeah, they just walk through your opponents. You made it through to the final 16 for the K1 World Grand Prix and in Seoul you fought Semi Schilt. Now, this was Semi Schilt 2007 at the peak of his powers. What was that experience like to, to fight Semi, who was just a, a man-monster machine back then? Yeah, um, to be honest, I, I wanted that fight. I, I was um, uh, feeling so uh, on such a high, I, I was... Um, you know, I was feeling very strong, very confident, and um, 
uh, maybe uh, sometimes I didn't give him the 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 credit he deserved. Uh, and also, draws uh, you know Ernesto has fought him and um, that, that that didn't go well. So um, it was bit of a like personal. I'm gonna get him for Ernesto and um, uh, just towards the end, uh, um, to, towards when I was walking out to the fights, I remember being emotional. I remember losing my focus. I remember, you know, drifting away from my game plan because we did have a game plan. And, um, yeah, I, I just didn't hold it together and um, emotions got better of me and, um, yeah, happened what happened. We spoke about the size of Bada Hari before at six foot six, but semi short six foot 11. That must have been a little imposing to, to square up to Semi because he's so bloody tall. And that's the difficulty for, for most people who fight him is Semi's length is just incredible, isn't it? Yes. It's basically you throw in, um, throwing your punches and you just you, you just can't hit him. And then he just extends his arm and you pop in this big jab in your face. Or <laughs> knee. So, um, yeah, it's um, you either, yeah, I don't know. Was, I found it's also very frustrating because you're throwing your punches in the air and nothing connects and then he gets you. So, um, yeah, that, I guess that's his advantage. When you, uh, when you lost to Semi, uh, given the history between Semi and Ernesto Hoost, what was the reaction from Ernesto? What was Ernesto's emotional state? And, you know, Ernesto is not a guy who we typically see have a lot of emotional expression. What was he like after that loss? Yeah, we were both kind of, uh, we both felt, like we let each other down because um I I had you know I had I know that he's got a lot of big hype big hopes for me and we trained we trained some of the sessions went like four or five hours and we just drilled in and distance and moving and and doing faking and second face and try to try to catch him and um did a lot of did so much explosive work to be able to close the gap and um. I had yeah I had big high uh, big hopes on my shoulders to you know take him out and also he had his his hopes uh, and um, yeah we were both kind of disappointed. It's my it's my dog Michael Barry barking. <laughs> you know I, I know as he said earlier I, I used to commentate the K one with Ernesto and I know he was extremely proud of you in your next fight where it was a uh, reserve fight for the K one World Grand Prix against Mighty Mo. And this was one of the best performances of your career, Paul. Mighty Mo was on fire leading up to that. And a lot of people expected that Mighty Mo's hands would overwhelm you and that Mighty Mo would knock you out. But you came in, uh, you closed down his boxing and you TKO'd him with leg kicks in the second round. It was a marvelous performance. What do you remember about that night fighting Mighty Mo? Yeah, um, I remember going back to my roots, you know, just kick, kick, and um, try, try to. I knew he's going to be coming. I knew he's. We we knew he's going to come with bombs, and um, basically we worked on faking, having him throw his overhand right, and then step out and just chop, or just throw one two double jab quickly to keep his hands up and then chop his leg. And um, we knew that checking wasn't his strongest point. And uh, we really worked on uh, uh, you know, developing a lot of power and a lot of, lot, of, lot of damage to the kick 
to to his legs and um yeah it, it worked well it worked well it's just it, um what one thing I've learned in Holland is um that you you the the the, the Dutch guys they they have a different game plan for different fighter and they train to that game plan to fight that fight and um, I think um yeah uh, where where, um, where I was before I always try to fight my own way my fight my fight my fight so um yeah just learning to see your opponent's weaknesses and then watch him as uh, with your team and then of course taking notes and making making comments and well maybe you can get in with that maybe you can get in with that it was um yeah it was a very good experience to be in a team like that we've spoken about you fighting two of the biggest fighters in Badahari and Semi Shult but next up you come against one of the smallest fighters in K1 history oh. but nonetheless damaging in Gokhan Saki I mean Saki was just a beast back then in 2008 when you fought him what was that experience like and you know how did you try and combat you know the, the awesome speed and timing of Saki yeah um, yeah Saki is a great fight and um, he he's He's very quick, and he can see, he can he can see what you're gonna throw at him, and then he basically beats you. He gets you to 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 be will beat you to your punch and beat you to your kick, and um, yeah, it was um yeah. I remember trying to, you know, I remember throwing stuff at him, and then once I throw a couple of times, uh, basically combos, he will take him, he will take him, and then on the third one, he will beat me to my strike. And um, yeah, he's a very good. He's a very good fighter. He's a great, great fighter. Speaking of great fighters, you also fought Remy Benjaski in the K1 World GP Final 16 in 2008. You took Remy the distance. He won by majority decision. Tell me about that fight. And you know, Remy is often so underrated, even though he's a three-time K1 World Grand Prix champion, and he won it, of course, in 2008 when Bada was DQ'd in the final, but people yeah. do underestimate Remy. What was it like fighting Remy? And what was Remy really good at that you had to respect? I, um, I enjoyed fighting Remy and I, um, I, I, I don't know, like I'm still a little bit, I still got a question mark in my mind about the decision because I believe I was more active fighter and I believe I, I uh, got the most strikes. But I guess he got more more strikes, which um landed and hit. Um, it was it was a good fight all around, and um he does come back to you, and he does have a fighter's heart, and um yeah he's got a very good guard. He's got a very good guard. Um, and he also his kicks and knees are really really good. His kicks and knees are really good. They do a lot of damage when even when you get him on your you know even when you block him with your forearms. Um, you, the the kicks do take toll on your arms, and his knees his knees are damaging. I've got to ask: Is it frustrating to fight Remy Bajaski Paul? You spoke about how good his guard is, and if we if we go to the final of the two thousand and eight K one World Grand Prix when Bada fought Remy, Bada got so frustrated because he couldn't land the clean shot on Remy and get through that guard as cleanly as he would have liked. Did you find a certain amount of frustration when you fought Remy because of that guard you spoke about? Yes, yes, he covers his head very well, and it's hard to to get get um get him get any good shots on his head. 
his body it's um his body is different you can he, he um he takes a lot of shots to his body but at the same time his body is very conditioned and he can take him so i yeah uh, i also found that frustrating um you know throwing big punches big hooks big uppercuts and um all landing on his forearms and on his elbows and um yeah he's a very good guard we we say in k1 that that's why he's still so pretty because he's got a good guard. <laughs> hey, you know what? He'll take that. He was a former male model, remember Jasky? So uh, there you I, go. Think, I, I think that guards help keep that face in pretty good shape. Paul, it's been amazing talking to you. It's so good to hear your voice again. And once again, folks, for those of you listening, you know, back in the mid 2000s, Paul Slowinski in heavyweight. Muay Thai was the man who was a multiple-time Muay Thai heavyweight world champion. He made a huge imprint in Australia and in Europe and over in Japan on the K1 scene. And Paul, you'll always be regarded, mate, as a legend. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, guys. Goodbye, Mike. Paul, that was wonderful, mate. It's so good to talk to you. And thanks for the stories. They were, they were excellent. <laughs> Cheers, Mike. mate. Yeah. Next, next, yeah. Time, next time you come to Melbourne, you and me and Hammer are going to hook up for a meal. Yes, no worries. Yes, yes. I'll do the same at Hammer's Gym probably next year, sometime March. We talked about it already. Awesome, brother. We'll definitely meet up on that occasion. It's great to see you, bro. Much love. No worries, Mike. Bye-bye. Cheers, bro. See you, brother. Many thanks to Paul Slowinski for joining us on the show. We really hope you enjoyed the interview. And before you go, in next week's show, we're going to have more information about the upcoming March 20th K1 Max event that, of course, will be commentated by, you guessed it, The Voice, Michael Chevello himself, no surprise there, eh? But what you might not know is I will be there right beside him ringside, whispering the cryptic instructions from the man in the shadows. That's right, mysterious K1 director, Mr. Sasaki. Now here's a little bit of K1 trivia. Mr. Sasaki was the director of K1 Battle Scramble, and for those of you who have never heard of the show, K1 Battle Scramble was K1's premier cable television show that aired in something like 110 countries or more, and it was orchestrated by the media mastermind, Mr. Sasaki. Now, all the amazing video work that you see in the fighter promotional videos and the amazing footage that's shown in each and every event is pretty much the handiwork of this man. So if you get a chance, do a search for the show, K1 Battle Scramble, you won't be disappointed. And in next week's show, we'll go over one from the highlight reels. We get to hear from the man himself, Peter Graham, talk about the moment he put lightning in a bottle and lit up Barter Hari with a rolling thunder. In the upcoming weeks, we've got plenty of amazing interviews in the can with some K1 greats, such as Andy Sauer, Gago Drago. We've got listener questions and more. And if you have a moment, check out the socials, guys. We'd love to hear from you. All right, next week. See you later. <laughs>